Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me as usual is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's going great, Natalie. Um, It's not exactly a winter wonderland out there. It is raining, super cold, super muddy, incredibly gray. It's yuck. It is total (laughs) yuck. Um, But we are in the holiday season, and uh, the court is on its holiday break. There were no arguments this week. There will be no arguments until the new year. So we're going to take this episode today to kind of do a bit of a midterm check-in, talk about some themes that we've observed of the term so far, talk about some of the cases recently added to the docket, and a couple big ones coming up in 2023. So I'm excited to kind of take a break step away from the day-to-day oral arguments and just kind of take a, you know, finger on the pulse of how the how, how the Supreme Court's been doing since it gaveled in in October. Yeah, that's right. It's only been three months, but it's been like a jam-packed three months. So it I has. feel like this breather is much needed and kind of like, I don't know, I like the end of year to like, in the beginning of like the new year to be like a resetting and like, <laughs> it's awkward to do it with the term for Supreme Court because it starts in October and ends in June, but like this feels like a good, proper time to do this. It is, it is. Um, so why don't we start first up with um, actually some news that we got about, it's, it's, I wouldn't call it blockbuster news by any means, but the Supreme Court has said that it will continue it's time-honored tradition later this term of announcing opinions in person on the bench. Um, so the court took a break from that practice during the pandemic for the last two years, obviously, with at first, you know, there was no one in the courtroom itself. And then after the justices returned, there were still no members of the public in the courtroom. So they, they continued to kind of have a pause on that tradition. And they're bringing it back. Um So that should be an interesting opportunity to hear the justices in their own voice kind of read aloud from the opinions, which were, I guess, during the pandemic, just posted to the websites. It was a bit anticlimactic, if you will. So I was super excited to hear this news because I do miss that tradition, and I think it was an important one. But I was also super disappointed to hear that there's no live stream planned for these. No, there's going to be no live streaming. So the court has said that it will only live stream oral arguments. It's not going to extend that new, uh, I, I'd call it like a, a boon to transparency. They're not going to extend that to the actual opinion announcements themselves for reasons that went unelaborated um, in the uh, 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 press office's statement announcing the, the the continuance of the of the opinion announcements, which means that if you want to, you know, see your favorite justice in action reading their majority opinions from the bench, you're going to have to actually go to the court. Of course, you won't know if your favorite justice has the opinion because they don't tell you who has the opinion beforehand until you're actually sitting there in the courtroom or even what opinion it is. But in any event, yes. Um, uh, if you want to hear the audio uh, of those opinion announcements, they're only going to be released through the National Archives at the beginning of the next term. Boo! Is <laughs> is all my is all I want to say is boo to that. I like <laughs> I know that you know in the grand scheme of things, the important thing is like they're doing this again and they're still posting the opinions on the website. So the in terms of transparency, everyone kind of knows what's being handed down quickly and. And whatnot, but like I feel like there's something you miss, 
you oh, know, yeah. like if you're not in the courtroom and get to hear that. Well, I mean, the Supreme Court, like written opinions came after uh, orally delivered opinions. Like in the early days of the Supreme Court, they didn't even have written opinions. The justices would just read their opinions um, one by one separately. Anyway, that's a whole nother story there. But you're absolutely right that there is something lost when you don't actually kind of like hear them deliver it in their own voice. And I would say that, uh, I mean, one of the big things that is pretty interesting about these opinion announcements is you often get these oral dissents. Um, so in certain cases, when a justice really, 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 really doesn't like the majority's decision, they will read portions of their dissent aloud from the bench. It's meant to be like kind of a gesture, a symbol of their disagreement. And uh, I think probably won't, probably the most famous um, justice to take advantage of these oral dissents was Ginsburg, uh, the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She was known um, to read kind of like these biting dissents that oftentimes she would use as an opportunity to call on Congress across the street to remedy what she perceived to be the majority's error. That was what she did in the uh, Ledbetter case, the Ledbetter versus Goodyear tire case, um, when the majority basically made it more difficult for uh, women to succeed in uh, fair pay litigation. Um, and it, it ended up being a pretty successful oral dissent if you consider that the first major piece of or the first piece, really, the first piece of legislation that uh, President Barack Obama signed into law after he came into office was uh, the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act in late January of 2009. So these oral dissents can be, they give the justice a bit of a bigger platform um, to basically express their disagreement with the majority. So presumably those will return. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing those uh, as they start rolling out. Um but now, let maybe let's turn towards uh, some other news this week involving Justice Kavanaugh. Yeah, I mean, in the spirit of the holidays, right? Everybody's kind of trekking off to these holiday parties. I know I'm going down to the Law 360 DC offices holiday party this evening. Uh, we're going to be going bowling. It's 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 no big deal. Um, but in any event, it, it was a holiday party that Justice Kavanaugh went to that made some headlines. It's continued to make some headlines, including quite a bit of pushback. So um, Politico was the outlet to first report that Justice Brett Kavanaugh attended a holiday party um, at the home of Matt and Mercedes Schlapp. Now, Matt Schlapp is the leader of a group called the American Conservative Union, which is the organizer for the annual CPAC conference featuring, you know, some pretty big conservative figures who come to give speeches. It's basically a, a big political pep rally. And other names on the guest list included some pretty prominent conservative figures, like some ex-Trump administration officials like Stephen Miller and Sean Spicer. Um, and uh, the Republican member of Congress, Matt Gates. So the reporting that Justice Kavanaugh was in attendance at this party, in this gathering of prominent conservatives, Republicans, caused, I'd say, uh, quite a bit of chatter, quite a flurry of keystrokes at various outlets um, in recent days, a number of commentators suggesting that it kind of underscores the lack of consideration that the justices on the Supreme Court give to the appearance of bias and who it is they associate with. I mean, we talked last week about the testimony 
from the whistleblower, Rob Shank, who testified to Congress that the conservative justices were the target of his group's secret lobbying campaign from what he called stealth missionaries seeking to use these social gatherings like holiday parties and the like as opportunities to influence the conservative justices' votes in these cases. Now, of course, there's no reporting that anything of the sort happened at the holiday party that uh, Justice Kavanaugh attended. But whether you believe you know, everything or not even a single word of Shank's testimony, one thing that I found interesting was his, his statement that his group actually targeted the Supreme Court after finding that the strict ethical rules surrounding, you know, for instance, members of the, of the legislative branch and the executive branch, it made it kind of difficult to achieve their objectives of having lots of influence, whereas those ethical rules surrounding gifts and hospitality don't exist at the Supreme Court, not in any sort of codified or binding way on the justices. So uh, people are using this Kavanaugh holiday party as, as more fuel to the fire of calling for you know, more clear ethical standards for members of the Supreme Court, who currently, as it's been noted on this podcast many times before, are the only judges in the country not strictly bound by such an ethical code. Yeah, in a time when I feel like the court's increasingly coming under attack for alleged perceived partisanship, this did seem like a bit of a misstep on on Kavanaugh's part. It just does feel like it's adding kind of fuel to those calls um, for more reform. Will be interesting to see if, if if that gets noted in some way down the line. Yeah, it's also part of a trend um, of justices. I think probably both Democratic appointees and Republican appointees. Where, granted, this one is a holiday party, but you know when it's like a public appearance or something, you tend to hear about justices associating exclusively with like-minded groups and folks, right? So whether that's a liberal speaking at the American Constitution Society, a well-known left-leading liberal organization, or Republican appointees at in conservative circles, there doesn't seem to be a lot of you know, crossover in terms of the people that they are associating with off the bench, which I know for some is a source of consternation that you, know, you have your camp and I have my camp and never the twain shall meet. Well, moving along. As you mentioned earlier, the justices are on their December recess, so no oral arguments or conferences until the new year, but they've been really busy with cert grants this week. Yeah, that's right. Uh, (laughs) There was an orders list on Monday, and it was all denials of cert. And then there was an orders list on Tuesday, and there were a ton of grants. So it was kind of interesting, the timing of that. Usually you see the orders list on Monday as being the opportunity for them to grant a bunch of cases. In this case, they waited till Tuesday in what was kind of an unexpected uh, set of orders. But you're absolutely right. They took up a few new cases. We're going to be talking about two of those. Natalie, I'm going to start with one of them, um, Slack Technologies versus Pirani. I don't know how much you've heard about this case. I certainly hadn't been paying very close attention to it, but it's one I've been reading up on and is pretty interesting because of the huge implications it could have for investor lawsuits against publicly traded companies. So how is your kind of like financial literacy when it comes to big things like IPOs and stock trades and Jimmy, do you not know I used to be a deals reporter at Law 360 for a very <laughs> long time? <laughs> excuse me. Excuse me. So I did not know that, but for me, I was a total novice, right? So I had to reach out to Law 360 reporter Jessica Corso to kind of answer some of my very 
amateur questions about this case. And I think before I even describe some of the facts, um, I just want to kind of break down two concepts that are actually key to understanding what's going on. So the first concept is the difference between registered and unregistered uh, shares in a publicly traded company. So registered shares are those that, you guessed it, are registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission and generally speaking, offer more investor protections than unregistered shares. Unregistered shares are, you know, it's also known as restricted stock, and it's typically held by a company's founders or given to employees through some kind of employee stock benefit plan or some high net worth individuals who, I guess, uh, can invest in those because it's a little bit more risky. Um, So the second thing to understanding this case is the difference between two prominent ways of how a company can go public. So one um, is something that I did know about. It's called an initial public offering. And basically, a company will put out a bunch of newly created shares on the market at a set price in order to raise a bunch of capital. Now, there's another way that I was not previously familiar with. This is called a direct listing. And this is a fairly new phenomenon that was only approved by different stock exchanges just a few years ago. But basically what happens in a direct listing is that instead of creating new stock, direct listings allow the current shareholders of a company, both registered and unregistered, to list their stock on public exchanges at market prices. It's not a price that's set by, let's say, an underwriter or something like that. So getting back to the Slack case, I know I've been speaking for a while now. That was a good primer, though. Thank you. Thank you. I I definitely leaned on Investopedia to kind of like brush up on some (laughs) of my, my terminology. But getting back to this case, the Supreme Court in this case is set to decide whether investors suing a company that allegedly misled them have to prove that they had registered stock or whether it doesn't matter in the context of, let's say, a direct listing. So the facts here, there's a plaintiff, his name is Fayaz Parani. He's bringing these claims on behalf of other investors and he lost, uh, he claims that he lost more than $1.4 million as a result of misstatements or omissions that Slack made ahead of its direct listing uh, on the stock exchange in 2019. So I Go just ahead. want to stop you right there. So I, I, I just want to make sure. So as with IPOs, you ha- they have to put out investor documents related to the IPOs, but they also have to do this for the direct listings. And supposedly the information in, in those documents is what he's saying had misstatements. And this is a fairly common way of like investor class actions against large right. companies for for financial deals but yeah okay yes it's a it's a particularly straightforward claim under the securities and exchange act um, protections for investors when it comes to things like mis misstatements or omissions but the wrinkle in this case is that because it's through a direct listing slack says that the 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 lead plaintiff pirani can't actually prove that he had a registered share because obviously in a direct listing all the outstanding shares of a company, both those that are registered with the SEC and those that are not, are put on the market at the same time. And you can't necessarily know whether you're buying a registered stock or an unregistered stock. And so they say because he can't prove that, that he can't bring these claims for uh, misstatements or omissions under the Securities and Exchange Act. Um Slack argues that the Ninth Circuit departed from basically every other court of appeals 
when it said that it did not matter whether what Pirani purchased was registered or unregistered stock, he could continue to pursue those claims. Now, the business community has rallied in defense of Slack, warning of a deluge from suits from unregistered shareholders. And a lot of tech companies are fearing that basically allowing anyone with unregistered stock to sue over alleged misstatements in a registration statement with the SEC, that's going to make a direct listing a lot more unappealable, a lot more unpalatable or a lot more, I guess, unattractive. That's the word I'm looking for. Unattractive to these big tech companies that are looking for alternatives to an IPO. Yeah, at a time when tech companies are like dealing with a lot of like roller coaster uh, economics, especially on the market, that seems like a big deal. Right. That that's kind of the key point because, I mean, uh, the different the, the primary difference between the IPO and the direct listing is that the IPO benefits the company because it allows um, the company to generate a whole lot of revenue um, by by creating these new shares and putting it on the market. The direct listing primarily benefits the shareholders, the founders of the company, the employees of some of these tech companies. It doesn't actually create new wealth for the company itself, only the shareholders that that own that hold the registered or unregistered stock. So yeah, to the extent that this makes it a little bit more difficult for them to do that, I think it's going to be seen as kind of a very unwelcome development from a lot of these companies. So another interesting case that the court took up this week um, was a case known as U.S. versus Samia. I think I'm saying that right, but I'm not 100%, so apologies if I'm not. Um, It was taken up on Tuesday, and the justices agreed, basically, to look at the appeal of a man convicted of murder for hire. Not generally what we see at the the Supreme Court docket. Um, But specifically here, the justices are going to weigh whether courts violate the Sixth Amendment's confrontation clause when juries hear redacted co-defendant confessions, especially when they seem to be confessions that are guided by prosecutors towards incriminating someone specific, like another co-defendant specifically. So the confrontation clause guarantees that in a criminal trial, you have the right to confront or dispute witness testimony. Now, when it's a co-defendant in a joint trial and their confession is admitted as evidence and they're not testifying and the confession implicates you, that kind of makes it a bit of a murky situation about whether you can confront that witness, right? So just a bit of background. In 2018, Adams Mia was convicted alongside two co-defendants of a 2012 hit uh, on a real estate agent in the Philippines. Um, just kind of side note, the agent who, the real estate agent who was killed um, had been suspected of stealing money from some sort of international fraudster. And that was kind of like the basis for this, uh, this hit. Um, co-defendant. David Stilwell confessed to being the driver in the shooting and implicated Samia as the gunman. Now, his confession, in line with the 1968 Supreme Court case known as Bruton versus U.S., that requires redaction in those kind of, in that kind of testimony um, for the reasons we kind of implicated up above, as to like you have to be able to dispute and confront your witnesses. Um, his confession implicating Samia had Samia's name redacted. But prosecutors allegedly asked questions that contextually made it immediately obvious that the confession could only refer to Samia, according 
to Samia's lawyers. Now, it seems there's the, this growing circuit split since the Bruton case uh, as to, you know, how you, you have to require a redaction. Um, with this Second Circuit opinion, and there, there's now four circuits that say, as long as the name's properly redacted, it's all cool, right? But six other circuits say that the constitutionality of a redacted confession in a joint criminal trial has to be considered in context, right? So they're not always cool with like, if it's super obvious that you're implicating one of your co-defendants, that that confession can be admitted. Now, since the judge had refused to separate the co-defendants for different trials, um, Samia's lawyers say he had no opportunity to confront or cross-examine Stilwell, as is his right under the Sixth Amendment Confrontation Clause. So now this case is here before the Supreme Court um, and growing circuit split. So it's a bit of an interesting case to, you know, as to like what rights you have basically with, with confessions. I will say at least pointing towards a 1987 decision where the court kind of looked at a similar case. They did not say that a properly rejected confession was brutal violation. So it'll be interesting to see if the growing circuit split, the growing kind of issues with uh, redactions and confessions might change their minds uh, for this one. So if I'm understanding Samia's argument correctly, it's that the jury was presented with this redacted confession of his co-defendant, which all context and signs in the, at that point in the case had pointed to inculpating him as involved in this conspiracy for murder for hire and that he wasn't actually allowed under his constitutional right under the confrontations clause to cross-examine his co-defendant in the case. Is that kind of how it boils exactly, down? Exactly, because the, the co-defendant didn't testify. It was, a, it was a confession that had been recorded and it was submitted as evidence. Right, and presumably had there been separate trials, the jury would not have had access to that other confession um, exactly. or right um, so it wouldn't have been evidence per, like basically given to the jury okay that's a really interesting case um, I'll, uh, I'll be curious to see how the justices deal with that you're absolutely right it's not every day that the Supreme Court is dealing with a murder for hire plot from a hitman an alleged hitman um, in its in its day-to-day casework but uh, yeah otherwise it's a pretty quiet January argument session. There's really not many blockbusters left with the first few months of this term having been so jam-packed with huge cases from affirmative action to, you know, LGBTQ rights, et cetera, et cetera. There is one pair of cases that I've really got my eyes on um, that's yet to be argued, but presumably it will be set for argument at some point in 2023. You know, I don't want to gloss over the Biden student debt relief case, which is going to be set for argument at some point during the February argument session. We've kind of talked a little bit about that one um, on the podcast before, and we'll continue to give it coverage. But I want to focus today on a pair of cases involving immunity for big tech companies under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. So these two cases are called Gonzalez versus Google and Twitter versus Tomna. And they relate to terror litigation filed against the companies 
by surviving relatives of victims killed by terror attacks, where the claims are that these social media platforms, you know, provided some kind of service um, to these terror groups that allowed them to carry out their heinous acts. So the one that a lot of people are watching is the Google case. So in this case, this is the one that involves Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, where uh, the case was brought by the family of an American student who was killed in in a terrorist attack while she was sitting at a bistro cafe in Paris. And the family claims that YouTube's algorithm actively recommended videos that were uploaded by ISIS that the terror organization then used as a recruitment strategy to radicalize new members and encourage terrorism in users' home countries. So they say this goes well beyond the basic publishing functions that uh, Section 230 was originally intended to protect and that these sophisticated algorithms that uh, platforms like YouTube use to like you know, uh, target certain content at certain audiences basically takes that conduct outside of the protective scope of Section 230 and in fact violates the Anti-Terrorism Act. So that's the claim that they are pursuing. The petition asked the court to decide whether Section 230, quote, immunizes interactive computer services when they make targeted recommendations of information provided by another information content provider. Natalie, I think this is a really timely case because the subject of content moderation is just everywhere these days, especially since the um, recent purchase of Twitter by Elon Musk, whose basically sole objective was to bring more free speech to the platform. And so I think this case, it, it kind of implicates that conversation to the extent that social media companies are engaging in content moderation, um, what kind there are, and uh, to what extent their algorithms are promoting certain content. No, Jimmy, you're absolutely right. Um, I, this is such a big topic lately, um, as you said, especially since uh, Musk's uh, purchase of Twitter and his disbanding of, uh, you know, a safety council that had been essentially at the helm of, you know, enforcing and and making content moderation policies and practices at the company. <sighs> Well, I mean, that that sets perfectly up the next case um, in this pair. So this is a case called, as I said, Twitter versus Tomna. And the the legal issue is slightly different. So internet companies obviously have fought very hard against these attempts to narrow Section 230 as they've been facing a lot of these lawsuits from family members of terror victims alleging that the sites are hosting terrorist communications. But it's true that the Gonzalez, the Google case presents the court the opportunity to scale back that 230 immunity. The other Twitter case um, still could end up pro- providing platforms like Twitter protections from terror-related re- litigation. So the, the, the question in that case, which involves similar claims over a 2017 attack on a nightclub in Istanbul asks whether plaintiffs can even use the Anti-Terrorism Act in the first place to sue internet companies that regularly remove extremist content simply because they could have taken more meaningful or aggressive action. So that was the basis um, for the Ninth Circuit's ruling below was that Twitter did not take meaningful enough uh, or aggressive enough action to remove some of this terrorist content, um, allowing the claims to proceed. So 
basically what this boils down to, it's kind of tricky how the two cases work in tandem, but a Supreme Court ruling narrowing tech company immunity under 230 wouldn't necessarily lead to liabilities for the company under the Anti-Terrorism Act. So it's going to depend on the outcome in each case. To make it really short, the plaintiffs have to win both cases in order to succeed in bringing these types of claims. However, if for even if the court, let's say, uh, clamps down on these terror suits um, under the Anti-Terrorism Act, there are other conceivable lawsuits that they could bring under Section 230, depending on the outcome in the Google case. It's kind of a complicated one, um, uh, and it's another one that you know big tech companies are going to be paying quite a bit of attention to. Okay, so we've been looking ahead here, but I think now is a good time to switch back and kind of look back a little bit to the last couple of months of the term. I think so. Um, so it's obviously Thursday, December 15th, as we're sitting here recording. We have yet to have any merits opinions, Natalie. I don't know if you've noticed, but we've been talking all about new cases being added and oral arguments, but so far, pretty much silence in terms of actual opinions. I, w- I wish the listeners could see my face right now because like <laughs> I am so shocked by this. Like you you mentioned it and I was like, and I had to like really stop myself and think and I was like, oh no, they haven't put anything out. And like normally the court, you know, puts out uh, something like by November say and it's already December. Right. I think it's, I think it's the slowest start to a Supreme Court term in, in several years. Um, I, I, think that a lot of it has to do with the the absence of the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who kind of prided herself on churning out usually the first opinion of the term sometime in like late November. But yeah, the, the court has been taking its sweet time in releasing opinions. Um, we have no scheduled opinion days on the calendar this week. So we'll see how many, if any, they put out before... Um, you know, coming back to the bench in the new year will be very interesting to see if they don't have anything updated by then. Um, but in any event, yeah, it, it seems to be a pretty slow start, but that is not the only change. That's right. You had this fascinating article, um, Data Dive, into the length of oral arguments. And Jimmy, I mean, you can you can say it best, but it's, it, it seems like on top of like being delayed with opinions, they're also... Uh, being delayed with their like oral argument times uh, quite a bit like they're going much longer now they are going much longer i mean i i I hate to 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 cast judgments on an episode when we're going super long (laughs) over our normal recording times but yes oral argument times have absolutely uh uh, spiral i don't want to say out of control but they have jumped up dramatically since before the pandemic and what's interesting is that, you know, a lot of there was a lot of comments about how even during the pandemic, with their telephonic fo- format, um, oral arguments went longer. Well, the justices have been back for over a year on the bench, and argument times are getting even longer. So they're showing not only no signs of going back to normal, but they're actually increasing. Um, you know, th- this term has been a kind of crazy when you think about the oral arguments in the two affirmative action cases going for over five hours combined. We talked about that on the podcast before. Um, a case heard also uh, a case heard in November involving the Indian Child Welfare Act. That was just a single case. The affirmative action cases were two separate cases. 
the ICWA case was just one case, and that went over three hours. Um, it came to a point where Chief Justice Roberts basically <laughs> didn't like tried to gavel out the hearing before the the petitioner even had time to argue his rebuttal, just thinking that surely by now the case is over. But no, he was like, <laughs> and so he apologized to the to the to the petitioner's attorney who had yet to argue his rebuttal, and the petitioner's attorney made a, a funny comment like, "Okay." I, I take the hint. I'll, I'll, I'll basically wrap it up because we've been here for so long. But yes, we took a look at the numbers and they are pretty stark. So let's talk about those numbers because like the cases you just mentioned, it, it can be easy to kind of brush away as, you know, outliers, right? Um, but I know you worked with our great data team um, to analyze the length of audio recordings for these arguments over like the past few terms, essentially. What did you all find? Well, let's look back to, just to kind of get a baseline, let's go back to the October 2018 term. So this was the term immediately preceding the pandemic. And as you might expect, there was an average argument time of 59 minutes and 53 seconds. This is according to Law360's analysis of um, argument recording files. So that's to be expected. I mean, the court, since the 1970s, basically had scheduled hour-long arguments, 30 minutes each side, and there was a little red light that went off, and the Chief Justice you know, would generally adhere to those time limits. So it's no surprise then that it was about 50, it was just uh, uh, seven seconds shy of an hour. Go to the October 2020 term. This is the pandemic term. This is the term when for the entirety of oral arguments, the court heard cases uh, via teleconference. That, as I have previously mentioned, increased the length of argument. So they went from um, before the pandemic, 59 minutes and 53 seconds, to at the height of the pandemic, one hour, 19 minutes and 56 seconds, an increase of around 20 minutes. And then the justices returned to the bench the following year. And the average length of oral arguments continues to go up by nearly four minutes to an average of one hour, 23 minutes, and 41 seconds. Now, <laughs> this term could prove even longer. So we analyzed uh, arguments from the October-November sessions, and they ended up being a whopping one hour, 38 minutes, and 42 seconds. So, I mean, that seems almost like this like gradual increase, but when you look at it in those like kind of numbers, that's like, if you add in another couple of minutes, you're getting really close to almost doubling the original <laughs> time that the 2018 term had. Um, okay, so basically, if you're covering arguments in this term, essentially, or anytime soon, you're going to need to like wear super like comfy shoes, right? <laughs> and, and and be prepared to, to be there for a while. Um, now, you mentioned format changes are kind of responsible for this. Can you tell me about how the structure of court hearings has changed? Or can you remind our listeners, like, because I know we've talked about it a little bit, but like exactly how the formats have changed over this time period? Right. So I mentioned kind of the, 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 the modern Supreme Court argument that dates back to the 1970s. It was an hour long. Each side had 30 minutes. Uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist was famous for like very strictly adhering to the clock and would basically cut advocates off, you know, in the middle of a sentence if that little red light went off. Roberts was was a little bit less strict, but mostly adhered to those limits until the pandemic really just changed everything. So 
With the outbreak of COVID-19, the justices obviously could no longer hear cases sitting together on the bench, and so they debuted this teleconference technology that allowed them to hear cases remotely. This is a big deal, first time in the court's history that it had done that. But instead of maintaining its traditional free-for-all, where all the justices would basically compete over the course of that hour-long argument to ask their questions before the time expired, the court during the, the pandemic adopted at first a what they called a seriatim format. So this allowed the justices, um, starting with Chief Justice Roberts, to go in order of seniority to ask questions. They each got a few minutes um, to ask their questions. They went one by one, the thinking possibly being that maybe it would make you know, communicating by telephone a little bit easier if people aren't jumping all over each other. Which makes this, sense. Yeah, in, it makes in, sense. In a teleconference era. I would assume so, yeah. And so this had two main effects. The first, um, which was which was uh, pretty notable at the time, and we've kind of you know taken it for granted, but it, it certainly was pretty surprising, is that Justice Clarence Thomas, who was known to go for many years without asking a single question from the bench, I think at one point he went almost a decade, he really enjoyed this new seriatim format and started asking questions during his designated questioning time, basically in every single case, it was pretty surprising. And I think it just underscored how he doesn't, he did not appreciate that free for all style. He just needed the structure, right? I, I, I kind of get that. Some people are going to, you know, flourish more in a structured environments <laughs> like that. I think so. So the second one, as we've talked about, was that the hearings started getting longer because, crucially, here, the justices had set limits for their their questioning period but they would always go over and chief justice roberts as he has been ever since was very hesitant to cut off his colleagues when they had exceeded their time so he was not treating you know his colleagues on the supreme court who have life tenure and are you know in his equal in every sense of the word he was not treating them like advocates where he'd cut them off in the middle of their time probably you know understandably so but that that had the effect of that immediate 20 minute jump that that the pandemic produced so the telephonic arguments lasted from may 2020 to april 2021 the supreme court returned after that summer recess in 2021 for the October 2021 term, and they began resuming hearing cases in open court. But instead of just going back to the old ways, the old free-for-all ways where Justice Thomas never spoke, it announced this new hybrid format that would combine the free-for-all portion with a final seriatim portion where the justices could follow up with any additional questions. And, you know, as... I don't know if it's as expected or not, but just like during the telephonic hearings, the justices once again started routinely exceeding their time during the seriatim format, causing even longer hearings than before. So we've now reached a point in the middle of the October 2022 term where the allotted time for the argument that the court hands out on its public calendar, you'll get like a little sheet when you go to the Supreme Court in the press office and we'll have a hearing list of the attorneys arguing in their designated questioning time. It's meaningless. <laughs> it, it does not even approximate how long this hearing is going to last. It might say an hour. It might say, 
you know, maybe at, at, at times they'll go a little bit above, maybe an hour and 20 minutes or something like that if it's a if there's a lot of attorneys arguing. It is not a reference at all. You could be sitting there for an hour and a half. You could be sitting there for two hours. You could be sitting there for three hours. Or in the equal case, you could be sitting there for three plus hours. It is meaningless. I'm sorry. It sounds like Chief Justice Roberts has to get better at wrangling everyone. <laughs> like it just does. Or they need a time management consultant. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, they need their producer, Steve, to be like, let's wrap it up. When the segment is going long, he just he throws up the little T sign with his hands on the Zoom like he's probably going to be doing if this if this segment goes in on any longer. <laughs> no, it's it's crazy. It's getting out of control. But what's funny, Natalie, is that we in the media, we in the Supreme Court uh, press corps, like, like we're the ones that are complaining. Nobody else is really complaining about it. Like the attorneys are loving life because what better way to spend your time as an attorney if not speaking at the lectern in the Supreme Court of the United States answering questions from the justices about his or her client you know i mean that is that is like you know heaven for them basically and th- what i've heard from people that i've interviewed is that it gives them it it, it 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 basically gives them an opportunity to have all the justices' questions answered, and there's less rush. There's less interruptions like there were um, in the previous free for all time. Now, I haven't seen any actual empirical analysis of the interruption question, um, but from uh, one attorney I talked to, he said it was more civilized, um, and that the justices aren't needing to feel like they got to throw their elbows out. So that's just the perspective of at least the bar. But yeah, certainly the press. Um, You know, it's funny. I used to just like go and eat like an apple before Supreme Court arguments, knowing that it's only going to last like like an hour long. I got to eat like pancakes or something to just get the calorie intake to last me through like 130 or something like that to last through when the gavel out of the hearings. I mean, that's a really good point. And I I do hope you eat heartier meals now going (laughs) forward if this continues. I mean, like, so from the perspective of the attorneys, I I understand the benefits to this, right? Um, But, like, I also, like, the same thing with, like, say, a brief that does not have a good um, limit to either words or pages, it kind of just lets you ramble sometimes more than you need to and not really like sharpen your points as as maybe you would have to in the kind of elbowing uh, as you said of a more you know concentrated argument time like yeah one thing i've noticed is that the seriatim format at the end doesn't really differ in substance from the free-for-all point so i could see one argument being like well we're going to use it as an opportunity to clear up any questions that we didn't answer before i'm seeing the justices just circle back on the questions that they were originally asking in that final portion so we've been hearing them over and over again and sometimes those individual one-on-one questions at the end can last for you know up to up to like five to ten minutes per justice um so that's clearly what's causing the delay okay so arguments are taking forever we don't have any opinions yet. Um, is there a connection here between the two, you think? This is a really interesting point. Now, I can't speculate as to what exactly is causing the delay with the opinions, but I can tell you 
that if I was suddenly tied up, let's say, in meetings with colleagues for like an additional two to three hours each week, that's going to affect my pro- that's going to affect my deadlines for my stories. Like, just no question about it. So, if the justices are spending like way more time in the courtroom hearing these cases, I suppose that's time away from their laptops or desks typing up their uh, opinions in the pending cases. That's a really interesting theory. I, I feel like this is just going to end, though, in like a a rush of opinions towards the end of the term. And it's like, you know, when you wait till the last minute like to write something, it, so, corners get cut sometimes. <laughs> like, I feel like, you know, is that going to be the case here? I hope not. I mean, do you um, remember where we were in the beginning of June 20? I guess it was 2022. Wow, that's crazy how the years blend together. But we were like, are they going to be able to pull it off? They had 30-some cases left with like a month to go. And sure enough, they like dropped them, dropped them, dropped them each day. There were several opinions. And I have kind of a different take on it, which is like whether or not this is affecting the quality, I don't know. It is affecting the coverage. I mean, because these are, each and every one of them, the Supreme Court speaks for the federal judiciary it sets the law of the land each case in its own right is very significant um some more than others sure but they're all pretty significant cases and when you have like five to six opinions dropped a day for like weeks or something like that are those decisions being do they even have the opportunity to get the full airing and the full attention that they deserve from the public i mean my job is to cover them, and if there are numerous bombshells every day, there it doesn't leave a whole lot of room for like analysis and 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 reporting about the actual outcomes of the cases and the significance of the rulings. And so many also just can end up getting kind of overshadowed by those bigger right. cases, and but also deserve some limelight. So, dear Supreme Court justices, <laughs> if you are listening. At, please consider giving the press corps a holiday gift of a couple of opinions turned in in the near future. You know, it's funny. I was doing the, in in the course of writing that story about the argument length, this is kind of maybe the last thing I'll say on that. I was reading about early days of the Supreme Court. And this was at a time it was considered like the golden age of American oratory. And so one of the famous names of the Supreme Court bar was Daniel Webster. The justices would ask no question. There were no time limits, and certain cases, a single argument from a guy like Daniel Webster could last for days, days at a time. So I suppose if there's one silver lining, um, you know, as we give thanks this time of year, it's that we're, we're not in, we're not quite there yet. And by God, I hope we don't get there. True point, true point. Um, well, I think before our producer, Stephen, tells us we've reached our <laughs> absolute time limit, um, I think we should wrap it up here. Um, as always, Jimmy, it's been great talking with you. Um, for our listeners, we are going to be taking a break for the upcoming holiday season, and we will be returning in early January. Thank you, Natalie, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you liked this episode, please leave a review. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, additional reporting by Cara Salvatore and Jessica Corso. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. And for more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. 
Just search Law360 in the term.